in the morning when you need the news that matters most. We have a constitutional right to publish this story. We are the fourth estate and we will hold the powerful accountable. You need the front page. Wait, what's the fourth estate? Us, the press. And everyone knows that? On the press box. Because I feel like people always say the fourth estate, but they don't actually know what it means. I think everybody knows what it means. I thought the fourth estate was time. That's the fourth dimension. I thought the fourth estate was Georgia. With Graney and Bischoff. No, not state, a state. You thought I was saying we're the state of Georgia? Serena Williams is retiring, according to a story she wrote in Vogue that was published this morning. Uh, she's apparently going to play in the U.S. Open, which uh, starts at the end of this month, and that is presumably going to be the last time that she plays. She did not explicitly say that, though, but she has won 23 Grand Slam titles in her career. I think the amazing part to me is that the longevity of it. She won her first Grand Slam title uh, all the way back in 1999 and then most recently won the Australian Open in 2017. That is a very, very long time to be really, really good at a sport. I'll always remember when Venus Williams first came around and Venus Williams started winning major tournaments and everyone was getting super excited and their father, Richard Williams, said, Wait till you see the younger sister. <laughs> and Serena Williams has proven all of that and a whole lot more. 23 Grand Slam titles. Uh, there's just not much more to say about what she's accomplished uh, over the longevity, as you mentioned, uh, of her career. She's the greatest female tennis player of, of all time. She's got a claim as the greatest tennis player, period, of all time. Yeah, great question. Yeah, again, great question. Bears linebacker Roquan Smith has requested a trade. He took to Twitter this morning to basically spell out uh, what or why he's requesting a trade. He is going into the fifth year of his rookie contract. He says that basically the Bears have not made him a fair contract extension offer. He says he's gotten one, but he said it, he believes if he took it, he would hurt the linebacker market if he accepted what the Bears offered him. Uh, we talked earlier about Josh Jacobs and how much value he would have on the trade market. Not much. Late round pick, maybe. How much value do you think Roquan Smith has if the Bears actually traded him? Uh, roughly the same amount that Josh Jacobs has on the yeah. trade market, to go back to our first hour. I, mean, I don't care how good a linebacker is in today's NFL. Linebacker is a position that last time I talked to Eric Eager from Pro Football Focus about this, and they do the research about this kind of stuff. The question I asked him is, is the linebacker position essentially obsolete? Like, is this not going to exist in a few years? Are they all going to be hybrid safeties shifting up and down uh, between the line and playing deep coverage? And so an off-ball linebacker asking for a top-of-market contract is not going to draw a big trade return. Yeah, I, I mean, I was basically thinking that there's not going to be much for Roquan Smith, and it's the problem. I mean, we saw it with Kareem Hunt. We're seeing, we're probably going to see it with Roquan Smith and with Josh Jacobs if there was any trade there. Guys that might potentially want out or teams that want to trade, it's it's one thing to demand the trade. It's another thing for somebody to actually be willing to make that trade. And if you're the Bears, I think you're in a similar spot as as the Raiders. Is okay, what would be worth it? Like even if you're just getting one season of Roquan Smith or one season of Josh Jacobs, 
how good does the trade offer have to be for you to say, all right, we'll punt on this one season of them and take the future asset. I think the Bears are going to be in a similar spot as the Raiders is, okay, they might be willing to trade them, but for a sixth round pick, probably not. You're better off just keeping Roquan Smith because that sixth round pick is not going to provide you very much in the future. Happy to move on to the the next question here, Aaron. Alabama is the number one team in the preseason coaches poll. So I'm guessing this isn't going to be another rebuilding year for Nick Saban like he claimed last year was. Apparently crickets are involved here as well. Um, Yeah, I look at it and think, I guess all those issues he had with Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M spending the big time money aren't hurting him yet. (laughs) Very impressive. Nick managed to rattle the cage, get the Jimbo inside very fired up and saying all sorts of notable things, and then go right back to being the number one team in the nation. Yeah. Uh, Ohio State, Georgia, Clemson, and Notre Dame rounded out the top five in the coaches' poll. I also enjoyed that Texas, who's ranked 18th overall, received a first-place vote. Uh, There were only four schools to receive one, Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia, and 18th-ranked Texas. Uh, And then Mountain West-wise, no teams in the top 25. San Diego State uh, received the most votes among Mountain West teams. They'd be ranked 35th if you just expanded it out. But actually, five different Mountain West teams received a vote to be ranked in the initial coaches poll. Fresno State, Utah State, Air Force, and Boise State all joined San Diego State. So not uh, going into it, not a dominant Mountain West team, but a top half that is probably going to be pretty decent uh, as far as competition goes in this conference. Rebels slide it again. Oh, Marcus Arroyo. He's got to get on the on the coaches poll vote so he can vote for UNLV. Next question. Uh, it is my duty that every time Adam Candy is on the show, I find an Aaron Rodgers topic because I know he's been tired of talking about Aaron uh, Rodgers duty. for over a year. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, though, told Albert Breer yesterday, the end is near. Who knows how many years that is, but it's definitely closer every single year. So Aaron Rodgers basically told you that time continues to pass every day, Adam. Are we going to be able to talk about anything related to Aaron Rodgers that does not go back to the fact that he openly said he does psychedelic drugs and the league was like, (laughs) that's cool. Like, I do ayahuasca. My eyes are open to everything. My third eye, too. I I don't understand Mm. how we can talk about anything around Aaron Rodgers without the fact that the league just looked at him and went, yeah, you know what? At this point, like... Date your actress, do your drugs, just keep showing up, all right? Just keep showing up and try not to say anything too crazy. Poor I Josh think you're Gordon. Right. Yeah, they basically just were like, yeah, we don't want to deal with whatever would happen with Aaron Rodgers if we punished him for God knows what he's actually doing. Yeah, I, I think you're right there. But uh, we'll get more Aaron Rodgers content for you soon, Adam. Okay. Great question. All right, SMU. Football and basketball players are going to get paid $36,000 each this season. That's going to be NIL money. Uh, there is $3.5 million in total going to SMU football and basketball players from a third-party collective. These are the groups of people, essentially boosters around each school. UNLV has one called UNILV uh, that basically bring money and say, hey, this is what we're going to pay to these student-athletes in NIL money. Uh, so... SMU uh, has one of the better deals just based on this as far as not for individual players, but as far as like, hey, this is something that goes to every 
football or basketball player, 36,000 per player. Um, big picture for SMU that may or may not have something to do with how much NIL money they can get together. We talk a lot about the Pac-12 and which teams out here, the Mountain, or the, the Mountain West could lose to the Pac-12, UNLV, how high are they on that? Is SMU the best expansion candidate for any power conference that's not already in a power conference? The fact that we're having this discussion for a program that got the death penalty at one point is really <laughs> emblematic of They're back. It's NCAA, legal now. Right? And by the way, I love how excited we're getting about a $36,000 payment to these kids. Right? These kids are barely going to be making a minimum wage for going out there and playing what could ultimately be Power 5 football before very long. We're like, $36,000? That's money none of us would take for a job. All right, hey. Jared, aside. Hey. <laughs> I'm in ongoing negotiations. Don't say stuff like that. See I, if you I, can get him to throw in some ayahuasca. <laughs> you really think that's a good idea? It's not a bad idea. I found out from the NFL you can't even lose your job for that. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Justin Tucker signed a four-year, $24 million extension with the Ravens. So Justin Tucker's 32 years old, playing a position that, um, what, outside of quarterback maybe ages could age the best? Could he be kicking for another decade? Like, could we have 10 more years of Justin Tucker being the best kicker the NFL's ever seen? God, I hope so, because it's one of those things where Justin Tucker is, I hate this word, but he's pretty close to automatic when it comes to kicking a football. So he now matches Chris Boswell, who also got a contract this offseason for fully guaranteed money. And those two guys are 33 and 31, respectively. In the NFL, that's usually retirement age. So good, good on them both. Um, let me ask you a question in return, since kicker talk is what gets the ladies excited. Oh. Uh, is Daniel Carlson as good as both of them? He's looked like it for, or he was last year. I mean, and he, here's the thing with Daniel Carlson. If you look at the Raiders, like, sort of run into the playoffs where they won the four, last four games of the season... A big reason why is because Daniel Carlson like didn't miss, and other teams that the Raiders were playing missed field goals in that span. I, I forget the exact number, but it was in four wins, like three, maybe four missed field goals from their opponents. Meanwhile, Daniel Carlson was out there and didn't miss, and that was a big reason why they won so many close games last year is when your kicker doesn't miss, that's an extra three points, and when you're playing one-possession games, that's what leads to you winning the game. So... Yeah, I mean, there, there's a chance. And I think the big thing is, like, you talk about longevity with Serena Williams. Justin Tucker's been doing this for a while now. So can we see it from Daniel Carlson for four, five, six seasons? Then we can, you know, then you can be, hey, he's got the career path of Justin Tucker. But as far as this season, going into this season, I think it's fair to say Daniel Carlson's not too far away from who, would, who you would want outside of a Tucker or a Boswell. And he's 27 years old. And here are some of the other kickers who are still – in the league and like their names that you know and they're all 35 or older greg zerline nick folk matt prater robbie gold ryan Suckup, i mean mason crosby these are all guys who are 35 plus as much as you and i don't like john gruden's approach to field goals or rich Basaccia's approach to field goals for that matter uh the raiders certainly were defaulting to a guy who could be doing it for a long time for them 
Right, to give them some benefit of the doubt, it was a guy who was really good at kicking. They weren't trotting out a guy who was hitting 71% of his field goals and saying, yep, you got this, let's do it. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into some baseball because the Yankees no longer have the best record in the game. Everybody in the place hit the open deck. On Saturday, Jared is going to be out at the Tuscany Casino here in Las Vegas for the Front Row Card Show, baseball, basketball, football, and hockey cards, plus non-sports cards. You can take your cards out, sell them, trade them, buy some, get them graded, whatever you need to do with your card collection, and go find Jared. Give him a card for free. Maybe not. Maybe I'm bringing my Pokemon cards. Oh, look at that. Go steal them from Jared? I don't know what's going to happen there. Okay, don't steal them. That'd be mean. Um, Later in the show, we're going to have tickets to Rob Zombie to give away, so stay tuned for that. And coming up in maybe 20 minutes or so, we're going to have tickets to the Three Ice Playoff Championship at the Orleans Arena. So stick around if you would like to go out to the Three Ice Championship. But now we're going to talk some baseball with Adam Candy. And we're going to look at the lovely New York Yankees. They were at 1.38 games over 500. Uh, since then, they are 10 and 16. They're 71 and 39 overall. They still have the best record in the American League. The Dodgers have surpassed them overall. Uh, Adam, you have been cautiously pessimistic about the Yankees every time I've talked to you this season. How are you feeling about them right now during what's been their worst stretch of the season? I'm feeling like they're 71-39. Like, I'm not that worried about the overall situation. But this is why early in the year when you and Ed had me on and you were laughing at me saying they're 27-9 and nine and you're pessimistic or whatever number it was at the time. And I was trying to say, guys, they're not this good. Like, they were never this good. Well, I'll flip it on its head. They're not this bad either. Uh, this team has been wrecked by injuries. Uh, if you look at who they're throwing out there right now, in the bullpen especially, you understand how they've blown some games that they would have won earlier in the season. So how do I feel at the moment? I, I feel exactly the way that I've felt about them all along, which is that they're a really good team that's going to have to get the right matchups and a few breaks along the way in the postseason to do anything. What do you view as the right matchups in the postseason? The Twins, of course. <laughs> Like, give me the Twins every single time. I need to have the Twins. And even after the Yankees beat the Twins in the first round, they need to put the Twins back into the playoffs for the next round and let them play them again because that's the best chance that the Yankees have of advancing uh, throughout the postseason. Right now, look, they're 71-39. The Astros are 70-40. and 40. But if you go to fan graphs, the Astros have a 16% chance to win the World Series. The Yankees have a 10% chance to win the World Series. And I think that's about right because the Astros have proven, I, I can't argue this, the Yankees have played seven games against the Astros. The Yankees are 2-5, and five and they have led for a grand total of two half innings, both of which were walk-off hits. So you can't really <laughs> argue which team has been better this year. But does that mean the Yankees have no chance come the playoffs? No, not at all. I mean, I don't know that the Astros, uh, you know, no-name starting pitching staff is going to hold up all postseason either. Well, it's baseball, so we're going to end up with the Orioles and Mariners in the ALCS. The Orioles are 57 and 52. How is this possible? It's impressive. That is extremely impressive. And they were they, still sellers at the deadline. I kind of hope they make the playoffs despite it. They would be a half game back in the Central right now. <laughs> and they have a 4.9 chance to make 
4.9% chance to make the playoffs. The Twins, who are leading the Central at 57 and 51, have a 57% chance to make the playoffs. <laughs> okay, here's a question, because this I th- it's going to play out in the National League and the American League. The general idea that it might be better to get the two seed than the one seed, because both leagues are basically similar, where the Central Division is not as good as the East and the West. The NL Central, probably a little bit better than the AL Central, but... In both divisions, because of the way the new playoff structure is set up, for both leagues, I should say, the one seed will get the winner of the two best wildcard teams, while the two seed will get the winner of the central division versus the worst wildcard team. So potentially, like in the National League, you could have a Braves and Padres wildcard round, and the winner goes to the one seed. Meanwhile some combination of Brewers, Cardinals, Phillies, would the winner of that would end up going to the two seed, and that would be probably viewed as a much easier matchup. Same in the American League, where, like you said, you want the Twins. If the Twins end up winning the Central and they win their first-round playoff matchup, they would play the two seed, whereas the Blue Jays or something like that would be playing the one seed. So what's more valuable to you? when you look at the Yankees, is it the matchup in the ALDS or is it the potential home field advantage as the one seed in the ALCS? Oh, it's absolutely the DS matchup, and it should be to everybody out there. If you're a baseball fan, you're looking at this and you wanted to figure out who do you want your team to play. Let me ask you a question. Do you want a five-game series or do you want a seven-game series? You want a seven-game series. You want as many chances for the randomness of baseball not to take over as is possible in a five game series it doesn't take much for your team to end up behind the eight ball so you, know, you look at a situation like all right you talked about the national league if the phillies make it in and they right now have a 75 percent chance to make the playoffs do you want any part of the phillies in a short series do you want to go against aaron nola and zach wheeler four times the brewers the brewers are, are a terrible offensive team you want to get corbin burns and brandon woodruff twice or should I say a total of four times in a five-game series? These things are things that can wreck your season just because the other team has a couple of good starting pitchers. So, yeah, I, I don't care about getting home field because if, if it comes down to the Yankees and the Astros, home field's not going to be the determining factor in the end. It's going to be if the Yankees figure out any way to generate some offense against the Astros. All right, uh, Aaron Judge hit another home run last night. What's he up to, 44 on the year? How many do you think he's going to hit this year? It was in the highlight. Is this is this an intrigue? Let me ask it to you this way: Are you intrigued by Aaron Judge and any sort of home run race he's having? I'm treating Aaron Judge right now like a fifth year senior on a college basketball team who's having a great season. Where I'm just kind of looking at it like, you know what? I'm glad you're going out on a high note, man. Like this is oh. cool. like I'm having a lot of fun watching it, D- dude. Read between the lines. If you've heard Aaron Judge talking about his arbitration situation, about the fact that they didn't get a long-term deal done in the offseason, that dude's gone. That dude is leaving the Yankees unless they offer him some sort of Shohei Otani $75 million a year contract, and they already proved they're not going to do that. So I'm just enjoying the Aaron Judge experience for as long as it lasts. I think he'll probably hit somewhere in the range of, what, 53 to 57 I think he probably lands around 55 I don't think he gets to 60 I think the Yankees are probably going to start finding some rest days for him uh, come the stretch run but 
overall, I think it's fun. It's great for the it is great for the game to watch this giant Frank Thomas guy, this tight end <laughs> in a baseball uniform, running around making amazing defensive plays and hitting baseballs 450 feet. It's a blast, but I also don't think it's lasting for any length of time because I think he's gone. He's he's mad at the Yankees. So you're resigned to the fact that he is not re-signing with the Yankees. Are you, like, okay with that? Are you viewing that as, yes, the Yankees shouldn't go out of their way to give him the big contract or the long contract that he wants? Or are you saying, no, just pay the guy. He's great. Well, do you think that the Steinbrenners can print money? I think the Steinbrenners can print money. But Hal Steinbrenner doesn't approach it that way in the slightest. And I think the problem for the Yankees right now is that if you look into the future and you're going to say, okay, Hal Steinbrenner doesn't spend like his father did, then you have Garrett Cole on the books through at least 2026 at $36 million. You have John Carlos Stanton on the books through 2026 at at least $29 million. You have DJ LeMayhew on the books at $15 million through that time. So the Yankees, for at least the next four years, before the season even starts, to have Garrett Cole, John Carlos Stanton, and DJ LeMayhew have committed a total of $80 million of payroll. So are they going to be willing to extend Aaron Judge at what's going to take, let's say, $40 million a year over 9 or 10 years? Yeah, they've got the money to do it, but they don't have the owner inclined to do it either. Am I okay with it? It's damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you're the Yankees right now and you're thinking about what do we do with Aaron Judge, you let him go and the face of the franchise and the reason that a lot of people have been showing up to the ballpark is gone. And a guy who's playing like the best player in baseball right now is gone. But you flip it over on its head and you say, do you want to be paying this linebacker through age 40? <laughs> I don't think you want to do it in the NFL. And I don't think you want to do it in baseball. Well, okay, so in the offseason, if he walks from the Yankees, does he end up on a random team like Corey Seager went to the Rangers? Carlos no. No? Where does he go? He is, going to, he is going to get on the train and he is going to take the seven over to City Field, Steve Cohen is going to empty out every hedge fund dollar he ever made and give them all to Aaron Judge and laugh in the face of the Yankees when DeGrom and Scherzer and Lindor and Judge are competing for a World Series. He's not going anywhere. He's not even going to have to change apartments. He is going to the Mets. That's I, I'm on board with that. That would be fun. That, that, I mean, maybe not for you, but that would be a lot of fun. And, you know if, what? and if you're right... If you're right that Aaron Judge is just, like, genuinely mad at the Yankees, that'd be a terrific way to do it. I I have seen enough from Aaron Judge. Did you see him at the All-Star game when they read some, like, you know, kid dying in a hospital quote to him of, like, Aaron, I'm worried you're not yeah. going to be with the Yankees next year. And he was like, um, hey, it's okay, bud. The Yankees are still going to have a lot of great players. That dude's not coming back. He didn't want to help out little Bobby in his hospital bed with a little pep talk. He's not coming back. All right. Coming up next, Charles McDonald joins the show. This part for me is um, just grinding out my Whitney guys. Like, um, like just um, meeting, um, meeting on uh, like King Drake and um, Josh Jacobs. Like, just being around these guys and just learning um, from the guys. So, yes, sir, that's the best part for me, just grinding with them. All of the sun, none of the fun on the Press Box Summer Edition featuring Adam Candy. Joining us now is Charles McDonald. You can follow him on Twitter at 4Verts. All right, Charles, is Roquan Smith actually going to get traded for anything? Uh, Yeah, I think so. Uh, 
I think he's one of the better linebackers in the NFL. He's young. He's got a lot of value. I think if you're looking at pass coverage linebackers in today's league that can still play the run, I mean, I think it's kind of bizarre that the Bears will lowball him because you look at the look look at the rest of the roster. Who else are you going to pay? It's not like Justin Fields is coming up anytime soon. You know, depending on how that turns out, I uh, I don't know. I I'm a little shocked that they would be willing to just kind of lowball it and let him hang out like this. Uh, especially like, you know, I, I, I understand like the value arguments and trying to get some picks for a rebuilding team, but you know, we, we've seen these trades go poorly for, uh, for teams. I think when they trade, like they're some of their star players, like you go, you go back to the Jalen Ramsey trade, uh, the Jaguars end up picking Caleb on chase and the Travis end with those picks that they got for Jalen Ramsey. I mean, sometimes that I think we kind of lose track of that. It's good to just have a really a really good player, and you can get caught up on premium, non-premium positions, but I think when you're one of these teams that's kind of hitting the reset button and starting over, it helps to have some core players, you know, guide you through that rebuild. And I, and I think just in general, when you have a player like Roquan, who was drafted highly, came in, has turned into the linebacker you, you hoped that he would be as a top-ten pick, I don't know, it just seems kind of weird to be like, eh, we're going to trade him now. Does the fact that you would have to give him a top-level extension affect that trade compensation at all, though, Charles? Because I think that's what we were talking about earlier, is if you have to then give a guy a, I'm not going to say a market-setting contract, but it seems like that's what Rokon Smith rightfully is looking for, are you then going to potentially trade less for him You know, to be able to do that? Uh, yeah, I think the interesting part with Rokon is the fact that he's a linebacker, and I don't know if we've really seen like these blockbuster linebacker trades. You, you know, you can go back to quarterback. We've seen uh, a couple, a handful of those over the past decade. Uh, like I mentioned, the cornerback trade with Jalen Ramsey; those are like premium positions. But it's kind of hard to pin down like what the compensation would be because you're right. You know, you have to look at it from the standpoint. Not only are we going to trade these first round picks for Roquan Smith or for whatever player we're, we're we're talking about, we also have to pay them premium on top of that. And I think that decision is a little bit easier when it's like, hey, we're going to get Matthew Stafford in here. Hey, we're going to get. Uh, we're going to get uh, Jalen Ramsey here because, you know, those are positions that you're looking to pay that top money for anyway when you look at roster building. Uh, I think with linebacker, it's a little different because, you know, I, I wouldn't say they're kind of like running backs of defense, but I think, you know, those body types are a little bit more replaceable and maybe you can kind of shift your defense in a way where you can kind of restrict their impact on the game. But someone like Rokon Smith, like that doesn't just come along every once in a while. Uh, you know, I, I think we're talking about, a guy, I mean, he's, he's been an all-pro. He's got the talent to be like a Pro Bowl all-pro every single year, uh, as long as he can stay healthy. I, I think he, he could be one of those guys that, you know, if you're a contender and you're sitting there like, okay, we're just like a couple pieces away or we're, you know, a signal caller on defense away from having a truly elite unit, maybe that's something that you look into. Uh, because, you know, there's not it's not like there's, there's no precedent for trading a first-round pick or two first-round picks for guys that, are in a premium position. I mean, the Seahawks just did it a couple of years ago with Jamal Adams. You can argue that that probably wasn't the best decision, but I do think that Roquan Smith uh, is a bit more versatile player than Jamal Adams is. So I think, you know, just like to recap and sum that up, I think, you know, it's probably, I think his position will probably impact the, the trade market for him, but at the same time, he's a special enough player where I think someone will eventually bite the bullet. At the moment, the Raiders are going to start Colton Miller at left tackle and then just four guys at the other offensive line spots. 
how likely is it that they can find a legitimate starter for, let's say, right tackle that is a free agent now or gets cut by a team before the season actually starts? That's tough. Uh, especially, I, I think just because when you're talking about like quality tackles, even even backups uh, tend to, to stick around. It's because it's good to have a good third guy. Like I think the, the Jets are seeing right now uh, with how they're quartering Dwayne Brown and Mekhi Beckham's injury, you know, it, it really doesn't take long for something to go from, oh, you know, this is like maybe a position of strength or we have a, a solid starter here to absolutely nothing. So I think teams tend to hold on to uh, even like their swing tackles a little bit harder than they used to because I, I, it's interesting. Like I think when you look at just like the 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 evolution of football, like you see a lot of guys who I think back in like the 90s and early 2000s might end up playing offensive line. They're playing defensive line now just because you want to take use of athleticism. So it seems to me like the tackle pool gets a little bit thinner, especially in free agency. And I think at this time of year, you're really going to struggle to find someone. So I, you know, I'm kind of surprised. Like if they're really looking for a right tackle to get, why not get in the Dwayne Brown market? I mean, you've already shown that you're not afraid of adding veterans to this team. He's someone who will probably be, you know, your best starting option as tackles in general outside of Colton Miller. Uh, and I guess, you know, if you're already just kind of done with this Alex Leatherwood uh, not, uh, investment at a, at a at right tackle, you want to move him to guard or somewhere else, then I, I think that getting into the, the Dwayne Brown sweepstakes makes a lot of sense. But at this point in the offseason, <laughs> it's pretty tough. I mean, we're, we're a month away from the season starting, and uh, just in general, it's hard to find those guys in free agency. Charles, uh... When you saw Josh Jacobs getting as much run as he did for the Raiders in the Hall of Fame game, did your eyebrows go up, or did you just think this is McDaniel's and the Patriot way in terms of running backs? Um, my eyebrows went up a little bit, but I, I, I guess what I would say is like I, I would I want to monitor, monitor that through the rest of the preseason because you know, man, like, starting running backs they almost never play in the preseason, but I, I, I. I I think it's it's tricky with me in the preseason because I I find value in just kind of going out there to get reps and playing football, uh, especially when you're in a new offense. You're trying to get um, you know maybe your hands on a new scheme and trying to just figure out the ins and outs of that. Uh, but man, like that 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 was definitely an unusual sight, which is why I think it got people uh, a little like. Hmm. Is he about to get cut? Is he about to get traded? Are they trying to showcase his skills? Blah blah blah. But you know, I, I think in general, it's 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 not the worst idea to play your guys in the preseason. But there's obviously like the inherent risk of you know a guy getting hurt uh, in a preseason game, and obviously that hurts a little bit more because uh, because these games don't count. But I think in general, it's not the worst idea to play in the preseason because you can get hurt playing football anytime. And we we've seen guys already in the past two weeks where we've had training camp practice tear ACLs and be out for the rest of the season. That that kind of stuff can happen whenever you don't really hear anyone saying, well, I can't believe that you would have to practice stuff like that. Uh, it, it's just, you, you got to play it safe, but I don't think that Josh Jacobs getting five carries or a few catches is really the end of the world here. How many preseason games are you going to watch this weekend? <sighs> uh, all of them. Like as many as I can. <laughs> like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm dreading a little bit because uh, my girl's coming over on Friday, and the Falcons play on national TV. So there's the no way that game, she's going to, she, she's not going to be able to avoid that. So I'm just going to apologize in advance. So uh, they play at six. They play against the Lions. So definitely going to check that out. 
But, you know, I, I like preseason football because, you know, people are like, oh, these games are boring and they don't count. Yeah, they don't count, but, like, they turn into, like, this showcase of, like, college football stars that have been forgotten, like, towards the end of them. And it's just a fun little, you know, dip into the time pool or time capsule. Like, I like USFL football for the same reason, just because I think if you're a big enough junkie about this stuff, you always see people that you remember and even just, like, a little bit of nostalgia is kind of fun. And also... I don't know. It's fun watching backup quarterbacks sometimes, too, as, as sick and disgusting as that sounds. Are you wanting to see more of Desmond Ritter? Or are you wanting to see more of Marcus Mariota? Or is all of this a reason as a Falcons fan for you just kind of throw your hands up and say, all right, give me the 2023? No, I don't really. I, I mean, I, okay. Well, my friend Justice Muscada, he's a big-time Oregon fan. He has kind of like brainwashed me into rooting for a Mariota throwback season, so... I guess I'm I'm interested in that, but I think for the preseason, I want to see Ritter. Um, I I, I kind of struggle with Ritter because I like him. I liked him as a prospect. I probably would have taken him in the second round, but you know he fell to the third. But also he fell to the third. So like how how invested am I about to get into a third round rookie quarterback? You know, so you know if if he if he stinks, it's like whatever. He's a third round pick. It doesn't really matter. If he's good, that's just icing on the cake. But I think for the regular season. I kind of want to see what Mariota's got. Uh, it seems like from everything that I've read, read and heard, he's having a pretty strong camp. Uh, it's like Kyle Pitts has really ascended and just been totally dominant. So uh, I would say put Kyle Pitts on ice. Let Mariota get a couple drafts in the preseason. But I think August should be about Ritter, and then September moving forward should be about Mariota. All right, Charles, what do you got coming up on the Exemplist podcast this week? Um, I don't know. I got to figure that out today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. tune in yeah. to the Exemplus yeah, Podcast. Yeah, i got to figure that out today. <laughs> He's Charles McDonald. Follow him on Twitter, at 4 Charles, as always, we appreciate it. All right. Talk to you guys later. So there is Charles McDonald uh, with Underdog Fantasy and the Exemplus Podcast. All right, we got tickets to give away a four-pack of tickets to the Three Ice Playoff Championship, Saturday, August 20th at the Orleans Arena, plus... You'll be qualified to win four rinkside tickets and a VIP meet and greet before the game. You can also qualify for that by going to lvsportsnetwork.com. But right now, you want a four-pack of tickets to the championship, plus automatically get qualified. 702-364-1100 is the phone number. That's 702-364-1100. We'll take caller number six at 702-364-1100. You'll get four tickets to the Three Ice Playoff Championship. Tavis Malaki is credited with a sack standing at his own goal line. Lobo punter Aaron Rodriguez. Jenkins back to take it. There's a low kick. Jenkins moves up, and and he fumbles the ball. And it looks like the Lobos have it at the 47-yard line. The last thing the Rebels needed. Jenkins on back-to-back punts now with some questionable decision-making. He got away with the earlier decision, but right there, he just fumbled that one. You're listening to the Press Box Summer Edition featuring Adam Candy. Almost the right sport, Jared. UNLV basketball is hiring a new assistant coach. Jamal Williams will be their number three assistant coach. Number three change this offseason as Brandon Chappelle left late in July to take a job with Texas under Chris Beard, leaving Kevin Kruger with a vacancy very late in the offseason. And that will be Jamal Williams, according to Sam Gordon of the Review Journal. Williams uh, spent last season as an assistant coach at Portland State. It was his only season as a collegiate coach. Prior, he was at the high school level and the AAU level 
in the state of Washington. And here's what I this is what I find to be interesting because very, very late in the offseason, the ability to go find different assistant coaches much harder now than it would have been in, say, April at, you know, the, the prime time for college basketball's offseason here. Branch Bell leaving UNLV, probably not the greatest thing for the Rebels. But, so, or just, well, first, you would take that and kind of assume, well, the pickings probably were pretty slim for UNLV, and a guy with only one year of actual college experience, eh, it's probably wouldn't have been their first choice if this was back in April. But there's one key detail, I think, to Brandon Chappelle that maybe makes this a, a would have been a potential type of hire, if, even if it was April, and that is that Brandon Chappelle, was reportedly like the top recruiter for UNLV, transfer portal-wise and high school-wise. And if you're losing your top recruiter, that's conceivably what you're looking for in the next guy, and going out and getting somebody with limited college experience, but a whole lot of high school and AAU experience, I could understand why this would be the hire and not just a who-they-settled-for type of coaching move for UNLV. I can't believe I'm about to do this, Tyler, but I'm going to briefly defend Jared. Um, Jamal Williams probably <laughs> popped in his mind most notably as a running back in the NFL. And so, that, that you is know. accurate. Thank you. Okay. I just want to make sure that I, I give that little bit of credit that I he's a former like, chief, right? Good, good hire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, that guy knows professional athletes really well. He'll be great in college. Uh, Tyler, I think the bigger question when it comes to this is what are we going to look at as the roles on a college basketball staff, right? How much of the assistant coaching job is in recruiting and how much of the assistant coaching job is in coaching them up when they get there and how much of it is in in-game execution when it comes to assisting Kevin Kruger and assisting the players, right? And so... If you're thinking you can build a staff in a way that's sort of like will add up the puzzle to one thing that all fits, then yeah, then you can look at a guy who has the recruiting experience and say, we'll teach him the rest. My question with the UNLV staff is, who's going to teach him the rest? Because Kevin Kruger's brand new at all of this too. So, you know, I think there's a reasonable question to be asked of that now we had Barrett Peary on uh, Cofield and Company a couple of months ago and obviously he's got a lot of great experience to share there so it's not to say that coaches can't teach coaches from you know levels other than head coach to assistant coach it's just that with UNLV as we're trying to figure out where all of the pieces fit I think a lot of it comes back to Kevin Kruger is a second year coach and we don't know exactly what he's able to impart versus what someone's gonna have to learn on the fly yeah, it's a it's an interesting sort of dynamic, especially when you are coming off a period where you lost all three of your assistant coaches from last year. So the idea of continuity and and whatever whatever Kevin Kruger that sort of mix that you mentioned of you know in game coaching, coaching them up when they get there, and recruiting, whatever mix Kevin Kruger was going for in his first staff, kind of irrelevant because he's got three new guys that are going to have three different you know skill sets and what they're good at and what they need help on. So it's, it's interesting that you have that much turnover. And if you look at it, like from your standpoint of, you know, coaching them up and, and helping an assistant coach who maybe hasn't done the college part of it, but might help you a lot in recruiting, both the other guys on the staff, John Cooper and Barrett Peary have been head coaches at the college level at some point. 
Barrett Peary was for a few years at Portland State. He's been pretty much the rest of his time an assistant coach. Uh, was most recently at Texas Tech. John Cooper has two different stints as head coach, Tennessee State and uh, Miami of Ohio. Most recently was an assistant at SMU. So I think you can see sort of the way you built that mix of, okay, you bring in this guy, he's going to be a, you know, sort of a main recruiter guy because of his ties to that level of basketball. And look, we've got other guys with head coach experience that are going to do that. But the Kevin Kruger part's the interesting part because how much does he need to be coached up? You hear it a lot with like, first-time head coaches like oh you need to get a former head coach on the staff to help him out and stuff like that I I wonder like does Kevin Kruger need that much because I didn't watch last year and very often think oh they're Kevin Kruger's inexperience is like uh, costing them like I never looked back and thought oh yeah if they had a more seasoned head coach this wouldn't have happened like I, I never really got that sense last year I got the sense that Kevin Kruger had a pretty good grasp on what he was doing. I didn't feel like there were many like, oh, he's in over his head situations. No, and I don't think there are going to be a lot of he's in over his head situations. That might be the part that we avoid often with Kevin Kruger and the idea that he's a basketball lifer, right? We try not to impart too much of uh, Lon Kruger's experience automatically onto Kevin Kruger, but the guy has been a life in basketball and a life around one of the best college basketball coaches, not only in the history of this university, but in the history of college basketball. So Lon Kruger has certainly been preparing Kevin Kruger in ways that a lot of coaches probably haven't been prepared. Uh, I don't think we saw it, frankly, if you look across the uh, across the hall at the Thomas and Mac, you didn't see it with Lindy, Lindy LaRock, right? Lindy LaRock didn't look like a coach who was in a situation where you're like, oh, I don't know, she's too young, right? She's able to do the same thing where her father has been a longtime head coach and she's grown up in the game and she grew up under Tar Vanderveer, one of the greatest coaches of all time. So you, know, you can look at both of them in a similar vein and say, I don't know that it's necessarily a lack of anything on their part. I just think when you bring in someone with that little experience, as we're talking about, with the Rebels now, with the running Rebels, that it is at least a reasonable question to say, okay, how is this going to work? Uh, I uh, asked this question last week when Brandon Chappelle was uh, leaving already, but UNLV lost all three assistant coaches. They lost their two best players from last year to the NBA draft, and they didn't win 20 games, didn't sniff the NCAA tournament. What happens in an offseason when this team actually makes the NCAA tournament? It's a bigger question when it comes to college basketball overall, right? When we talked to Barrett Peary about I said, you know, do you coach guys up anymore? Like, how do you coach them up? Because you get to coach them up for, like, basically about a year. And and he's like, look, if we try to coach them up and they don't get time and they don't get significant minutes, we're not going to get to coach them up anymore because they're going to go somewhere where they're going to play. That's the transfer portal era. Oh, it's fun off season. The whole instability and roster turnover is definitely now uh, UNLV seeing it with coaches at the assistant level. Eh, it'll be fun every off season. Transfer portal for players, transfer portal for coaches.